0: Okay. Uh, thus thus far in, uh, in in this series, very briefly, um, we've we've seen basically uh, that the fallen angels, or the demonic kingdom, the evil spirits, the demons, call them what you will, uh, basically split into two groups. All right. We uh, the first half of the series, we concentrated uh, basically on the ones on what I call personal demonization detachment, Uh, if you like, the foot soldiers. And these demons, uh, what they're concentrating on is uh, demonizing people by getting inside of them. And, uh, you know, hence the need for casting demons out because some people have demons in them. And we've seen that the fallen angelic kingdom are divided into this first group, and those demons are concentrating on getting inside individuals. And uh, now, at this stage in the series, we're seeing the second group. Uh, what the Bible basically calls principalities and powers, and we've seen what they are, Uh, we've seen that they are also demons, they are also evil spirits, and we've seen what they do, Uh, and basically their job, what they're about, uh, isn't the demonization of people from the inside, Uh, that's the demons on personal demonization detachment, what they're up to is influencing, not so, just, not so much just individuals, but influencing the whole world from the outside. And we saw that they do this by wrong thoughts and ideas. And we saw last time that basically spiritual warfare is a battle for the mind. Uh, and we've seen that these principalities and powers are the push, they're the demonic push behind mankind. Uh, at back of everything that's going on in rebellion against God, you'll find that the principalities and powers are there as the push, kind of like sticking their hands through the cosmic curtain and just chivvying people along into all manner of sin, wrong thinking, etc, etc. And uh, we've seen too, although we haven't been too detailed, we will move on to this, but we've seen too that as the church, as followers of Jesus, that we have the power to break down the effects of what those principalities and powers are doing in certain situations and we saw briefly uh, that the demons on personal demonization detachment need casting out because they are in people, all right? But the principalities and powers, they're not in people, they don't need casting out, but what does need uh, to be done is that the stronghold, the effect that they have on people's minds in various situations, that stronghold needs pulling down, and this is what we're going to be, you know, sort of moving on to in a bit more detail in the next couple of talks. Uh, Now, at the end of last week, I left you dangling because I was saying that this week we're going to be dealing with the question of location, and I I don't know whether people have been umming and gnawing, what on earth is that about? But as we proceed uh, with this talk, you'll certainly find out. But what I want to do at the moment is to go back uh, to some verses that we saw in talk number seven, but which now, because we've got more background, we can uh, see them in a a bit more detail. Uh, If you go to Colossians, Colossians chapter two... Remember, we're primarily dealing with Group Two now—the principalities and powers. I think we've basically bashed personal demonization on the head sufficiently, although we'll be back to it here and there. But Colossians chapter two, all right. And um, what I'm going to do—I'm going to read uh, from verse eight down to verse fifteen. I'm going to read the whole lot, and uh, you'll you'll particularly notice the verses that we dealt with um, a few talks ago. Now then. This is Paul writing to the Christians in the Colossian church, and he says this, See to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe and not according to Christ. Elemental spirits. Come out, you elemental spirits. What's for elemental spirits? You'll find out in a minute. For in Him, talking about Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness of life in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And you were buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, having cancelled the bond which stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. And just, just go to verse 20, and he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Now, you remember the verse we saw um, is that in verse 15, speaking about the principalities and powers, Paul says that Jesus disarmed them when he died on the cross. You remember we saw that Satan's hold over this world as the God of this world was the sin of the world. But when Jesus died on the cross, he was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Satan has lost his legal hold on the world because of the death of Jesus. And we saw this thing about nailing it to the cross, that when the Romans crucified somebody, uh, obviously, I mean, they prided themselves on justice. Uh, There was a great failure of justice when it came to Jesus, but the Roman justice system, barbaric, yes, But there was a fairness in it that, apart from Israel, no other culture, historically, had come close to. And what they did is, when someone was being crucified, uh, they nailed a piece of wood to the top of the cross they were being crucified on, and they wrote on it the crime that they were dying for. Now, of course, the whole point is, you remember, when Jesus uh, was nailed on the cross, uh, Pilate couldn't think of anything to put on it, because he knew full well Jesus had committed no sin and so he just wrote Jesus King of the Jews etc blah 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 and, uh, and of course the whole point is Jesus wasn't dying there for his own sins he was sinless but he was dying there for our sins and so that piece of wood as it were Jesus King of the Jews etc etc that was our sin nailed to the cross and therefore Satan lost his legal hold over the world and when it talks about here that he disarmed the principalities and powers you remember we saw this that the actual Greek word there it means to strip off and the idea is like old wallpaper I mean it's like say say you go into a room I mean it could be that Terry and Carol did this when they you know sort of like first got into their new flat I mean you go into a flat alright it's a mess and there's wallpaper sort of like hanging off and you go in there and you're just ripping it off left right and center no problem that is what Jesus did on the cross. He, he, he just ripped Satan off, clearly, just tore him to shreds. So, Jesus, through what he did, the power of these evil spirits over the world in any situation where the authority of Jesus is brought to bear is stripped off like old wallpaper and that's what Paul is saying here. Now, in regards to it, we've got to cover this thing about elemental spirits because Paul talks about them in the same passage that he talks about principalities and powers. Uh, In verse 8, you get it? He says, uh, See to it that no one makes a prayer of you by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition According to the elemental spirits of the universe uh, verse 20 if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the universe Why do you live as if you still belong to the world now? Obviously if there are elemental spirits like demons called elementals, we need to know about it However, let me put your mind at rest completely. This is a translation error and uh, Those of you with more modern translations than mine will uh, actually have this corrected the word here in the greek that gets translated elemental spirits has got nothing to do with spirits whatsoever the word is stoician and what it means is principles it's a word that simply refers to the way that things are ordered the way that you organize things so they're the principles of organization uh, a manager has the principles of his job, the way he organises it. And it comes from the, the Greek verb stycho, which means to keep step. You know, an army marching in step, okay? Um, you've got the principles, this is how you do it, you don't deviate from it, that's, that's the idea. So here, we have, I mean, this elemental spirits is a completely wrong translation. And what we actually have here is that Paul says, and if we translate this correctly, he says, see to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the way things are ordered in the universe, all right? the worldly the way that the world keeps in step with itself and uh, in verse 20 if with Christ you died to the principles of the world that's what it's talking about all right so that what we've got is that here elemental spirits okay it's a wrong translation and more modern Bibles have corrected it but it's a reference not to evil spirits at all but Uh, The reference to the evil spirits is in verse 15, the principalities and powers. But what we have in verse 8 and verse 20 is a reference to the bondage that the sinful nature is in to the influences that the principalities and powers have on people's minds. So here we see the principalities and powers, what is it they're up to? They're the demonic push at the back of human history. They are the power behind what's going on. And they manipulate and control people by wrong thinking, wrong ideas, and deception, alright? And basically, the principalities and powers have got the human race marching in step to their tune, alright? And what is the nature of this march? Verse 8, it's philosophy, empty deceit according to human tradition it's the way that the world thinks tradition is simply uh, a continued way of doing something and the way that non-christians the way that the world orders its affairs is because the principalities and powers at back of human affairs are controlling and manipulating to keep people in the wrong kind of thinking that goes against God and therefore keeps the world marching in step to their tune. So what we've got, verse 15, talks about the principalities and powers, the these fallen angels themselves. Verse 8 and verse 20 are talking about the results of their influence, the strongholds that they have over people. And what is it? Quite simply, it's human tradition. It's the human way of doing things as opposed to God's way of doing things. One of the really famous uh, verses in the Old Testament is in Isaiah. And when God spoke through Isaiah, and he says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts, period. And obviously, when we become Christians, the more we get to know of the Bible, the more we realise that quite naturally, before we were Christians, without anyone's help, our thinking was the exact opposite to God's. Our way of doing things was the exact opposite to God's. And it was because we were marching to the tune of the principalities and powers. And remember, what is the, the key to their success? Well, I'll tell you, they're fallen angels. They have a sinful nature. What did we have? a sinful nature what have we still got a sinful nature and that is how the principalities and powers do it they manipulate and they control through the coinciding with what they want and what people want rebellion against god and therefore the control and the manipulation is there so these this elemental spirits wrongly translated here that paul's talking about he's talking about the strongholds The wrong thinking, the way things are ordered in the world, that is the bondage that humanity is into in regards to the principalities and powers. And it's that wrong thinking, that wrong way of doing things. I mean, just one example. What is it that we learn? The more we follow Jesus, what do we learn? What do I learn more and more? Quite simply this. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, you won't find the world saying that. That's the exact opposite to the thinking of the world, isn't it? In the world, it's number one. I look after myself. You push yourself forward. I mean, I love it. You know, people who are shy, they can go to self-assertion classes. Now, I mean, obviously, you know, it's good to overcome shyness. It's good to have a kind of a, a confidence. But, I mean, what the world is all about is pushing yourself forward, looking after number one. I, 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 me, me, me. I remember a few weeks ago, I said that, you know, all this sort of like rubbish, some people, they cross themselves, don't they? The only good thing that's ever struck me about that is if you cross yourself it's I and you cross it out and and it's that wrong thinking that is the stronghold in people's minds the pride uh, the sin the arrogance the rebellion against God and the principalities and powers deceive people and they manipulate them and control them and these are the strongholds this is the thinking that we as Christians are empowered and authorised to actually break in people's minds. Not everyone carte blanche, as we'll see, but it's the strongholds that we're gonna be moving on to uh, in regards to saying, right, what is our part in this warfare? We know what the principalities and powers are up to. What do we do in order to to kind of hold back, to come against what it is that they're actually doing. And it is breaking the strongholds, it's pulling down the strongholds in people's minds. And think of it like this, If, if a kidnapper is the principalities and powers, then the stronghold is the rope that the kidnapper has tied his victim up with. You see what I mean? Only, don't get confused now with personal demonization. That's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about the principalities and powers affecting the world from outside. But it's a good picture. If the principalities and powers are a kidnapper, then the strongholds, the effects that they have on people's minds, that is the rope that the kidnapper has tied his victims up with. And it's that rope It's that stronghold, it's that holding power that we as Christians are to break. That is where our warfare against these principalities and powers come in. Now, obviously, it means grappling with the kidnapper. Because presumably the kidnapper is not just going to let you walk in and untie his victim and and set them free. So, I mean, obviously there's going to be a wrestling. And remember, Paul in Ephesians 6, we wrestle with principalities and powers. Yeah, that means confronting the kidnapper as well. But it's the cutting of the rope that is actually what we're after. It's the cutting of the rope so that what is held can be released. That is actually what we're after in regards to the principalities and powers. And it's important that we know that. um, Because we've got to be careful to understand exactly what we are and aren't authorized and empowered to do. I mean, even when we were talking about, you know, like the casting out of evil spirits, like the ones who are inside people that need casting out, we saw that that authority that we move in is the delegated authority of Jesus. And we can only do it because he's told us we can. But that if you you try and do something that you're not authorized to do, it won't work. I mean, believe me, evil spirits know their rights. Um, I mean if I'm parked on a double yellow line, a policeman can come along and he can tell me to move and I've got no choice, I've got to, I'm under his authority. But if a policeman comes along and tells me that he doesn't like the colour of my car and he wants it changed and he wants it checked in at the police station on Monday, I'd laugh in his face. I don't have to take... Because he's moving outside of his authority. And exactly the same way if Christians move against even evil spirits and principalities and powers, if you do that outside of your authority, they'll they'll just not take the blindest bit of notice. So it is important that we know what we are and what we aren't uh, authorised to do. Um, I mean, for instance, we can, in a certain situation that God is leading us into, we can sort of like demolish the influences that the principalities and powers have on people in that situation, All right, We can break their power over people in a certain situation, if so be, God has led us into that situation. But what we can't do uh, is uh, forbid them to move on to something else. You see what I mean? Um, I mean, we couldn't, we couldn't have one massive prayer meeting and tell all the principalities and powers that are working in this area to sort of nap off to, to Brixton or something, or <laughs> Neasden, You know, I think oh well, that'll solve the problem. We'll just, we'll just tell the whole lot to clear off and we'll have a principality and power-free zone in Chigwell. We're not authorised to do that. I mean, yeah, wouldn't it be good if we were? But we're not. You see, we've got to know how far we can actually go. Uh, God has given these principalities and powers, these demons, God has given them every right to be around. Uh, I mean, you you know, again, we couldn't sort you know, like get the whole church across the world together and command all the principalities and powers to to go to Mars and stay there or something. Uh, You know, or sort of like, you know, contain them in the middle of the Sahara Desert or something. There's a limit to the authority that we actually have. Um, I mean, it's like, in, in the same way, that if you cast a demon out of somebody, back to the demons on personal demonization detachment now, if you've cast a demon out of somebody, okay, you can't forbid that demon to go and find someone else. The demon is quite free to go and find someone else. As we'll see, Jesus himself tells us in a few moments that that is the case. So there's a limit to your authority. You can cast a demon out but you can't tell it and I forbid you to ever go into anyone else because the thing won't listen to you. Why should it? The demons know we're not authorised to do that. And in the same way, we can break the hold of principalities and powers in given situations, but what we can't do is kind of get rid of the principalities and powers themselves. They have every right to be around. Uh, If you break their power in one situation, they have every right to try again from a different angle. It's important that we do realise that there's a limited authority here, but the authority that we have got is sufficient for the job. And we've got to remember, and this is, we must keep going back to this, that the problem, the real problem is never demons anyway. Whether you're talking about someone being individually demonised, a demon inside of them, or whether you're talking about human society being manipulated by the principalities and powers, the important thing to remember, it is not the evil spirits that are the problem. The problem is always the human sinful nature. Remember, at the very worst, a demon or a hold that a principality and or, or, you know and powers have in people's minds. At best, they're merely jackets hanging on coat hangers. The problem is the coat hanger, and the coat hanger is the human sinful nature. So, as we've seen again and again and again, the reason that principalities and powers can manipulate the human race is that fundamentally, the human race wants the same as them. They're fallen, the human race is fallen. They hate God, the human race hates God. God loves humility. Demons hate it. Human beings hate it. So there's no problem demons, principalities and powers manipulating people via pride through the sinful nature. All right. And so therefore, because the sinful nature isn't going to go anywhere in this life, it's important to realise that the principalities and powers aren't the real problem, it's the sinful nature and the world is absolutely full of that. But what we do need to realise is that yes, we have authority to break the power of principalities and powers in certain situations if God has led us into them. We have the power, if you like, to cut the ropes that hold the person who's been kidnapped. But what we don't have the right to do is expel the kidnapper. You know, can you see? We can break the hold they have in certain situations, but we can't actually dispose of them lock, stock and barrel. They'll be there again next morning trying it some other way. It's important to realise that. With demons who are demonising people inside people, you go for the demon and you cast it out. But when it comes to the influence of principalities and powers, it's not the demons you're going for. It's their influence on people's minds that is the stronghold that you break so it's important for us to realize that now at this point we're, we're starting to move on much more specifically to the actual warfare that god has called us to uh, because we have a part to play in coming against what the principalities and powers are doing. So now, in this talk and next time, we're we're now moving on to the practicalities. How do you fight in this warfare? What are the weapons that we use and how do you use them? But what we've got to go on to now, and this is the whole thing about the question of location, is this. Where exactly are all these evil spirits, these principalities and powers that we're up against? Where are they actually located? Because, let's face it, in any war, isn't it good to know where your enemy actually is? I mean, if you've got a war, the side that doesn't know where the other side is is the side that's going to lose. (laughs) You see what I mean? The moment you've lost your enemy, you're in trouble. So it's important for us to know where exactly are they? Now, we're going to start On group one, we're going to start asking about the evil spirits on personal demonization detachment. Then we're going to move on to the evil spirits on the principalities and powers kick. Okay, so we'll start with the individual demons. uh, who demonise individuals, right? And what we're asking, where are they located? Where are they? Well, I mean, you know, in some ways, it's an easy question to answer because presumably they're in whoever they're demonising at the time, aren't they? So as soon as we say, well, look, the demons who who get inside individuals, the personal demonization detachment blokes, as it were, where are they? Well, they're in the people they're demonising. So, so, so that's, you know, fairly straightforward. I think it's quite possible that they come and go as well i, I don't think it's uh, necessary that i mean if someone is demonized i don't think it's necessary that that you know that the demon or demons are there all the time i mean they may have a few people on the go i don't know they have freedom to go in and out certainly um you know but i mean nevertheless basically uh they're in whoever they're demonizing but the question has got to be thrown out wider because for instance where do they go if they've just been cast out of somebody this is all part of the question, where are they located? Um, obviously, eventually, they find someone else if they can. Isn't it? If you cast a demon, I mean, if someone uh, has got right with the Lord and, and, you know, and they've been infiltrated by a demon or demons, now, obviously, if they get right with the Lord and they've thrown the coat hangers out of their wardrobe, then obviously the demons have got to go. Uh, you know, and they can't get back in if that person is following the Lord. So, obviously, they go out looking for someone else eventually. But where, where do they go? Where are those evil spirits until they find, until they actually go looking for someone else? Now, turn to Matthew and uh, this will uh, inform you as to why I've asked that, that particular question. We're moving on to the slightly weird and wonderful now, but it's quite fascinating and we, we, we do need to know it. Matthew chapter 12, um, and uh, this is actually the occasion when Jesus was uh, told that he was um, demonised himself. So we've got the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit thing here, but I mean not that that is particularly um, important here. But, but let's, let's start reading from verse 43. Um, Now, one thing to realise, this little bit here that Jesus says, uh, I'll put it in context after we've read it, but just try and realise that it's not like straight demonology. Jesus is not giving teaching about demons here. What he's doing, he's using uh, something to illustrate Israel's condition. So that, for instance, Israel, Has had their God come to them in person, their Messiah. And even in spite of the fact of having their Lord God walking amongst them, Jesus proving that he was their Lord God in every conceivable way, all right, nevertheless, they rejected him. Now, basically, what Jesus is is saying here in this kind of talk that he's giving is that, my goodness, if, if if you Israel reject Messiah, then um, I mean for heaven's sake, what what else can there be but total disaster for you? You know, anyone who rejects the way of freedom is 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 just, you know, predestined to absolute bondage, aren't they? And that what Jesus is doing, he's likening the predicament of Israel rejecting him as their Messiah, as the predicament of someone who's had evil spirits cast out of them but doesn't get right with god and ends up with even more in them can you see either last state was worse than the first let's just read it it says when the unclean spirit and we've seen the unclean spirit is one of the synonyms evil spirit demon unclean spirit that you know all the same thing when the unclean spirit has gone out of a man this is a bit interesting, interested he passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none then he says i will return to my house from which i came i.e the person he was inhabiting and when he comes he finds it empty swept and put in order then he goes and brings with him seven other spirits more evil than himself so, so, there are degrees of evil spirits in that sense, that some evil spirits are actually more evil than others, Jesus says so here. He goes and brings with him seven other spirits more evil than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. So shall it be with this evil generation. Alright? So realize that Jesus isn't kind of teaching straight demonology. He's not doing a talk in his demonology series here. He's addressing the fact that Israel, having rejected their God, you know, I mean, obviously are going to end up in a terrible state. And Jesus simply likens their plight to the plight of someone who has a demon cast out of them, does not get right with God, does not follow the Lord, and ends up inhabited by even more demons than he started off with, alright? But nevertheless, alright, demonology teaching, no, but, but what Jesus says here concerning demons um, you know, sort of does give us information that we can glean. So there's some useful stuff here about our subject. Now, now there are several things that this little bit tells us, and, and we need to know them all. The first thing it tells us is that having a demon cast out of you, will, give you no good, will do you no good at all if you don't stay right with God. Is it? If you've had a demon cast out of you, you've got to prevent that demon getting back. And uh, a good incentive is, if it does come back, it will come back with some mates. But having said that, what do you do to prevent an evil spirit coming back? Let's say you've got one Christian, Christian well, person A, they get converted, didn't have any demons or anything, so they didn't have demons cast out, and Christian, uh, person B got converted and had demons cast out, alright? Now, okay, what does Christian B do to prevent his demons coming back? Well, he does exactly what Christian A does, who doesn't need to prevent any demons coming back because he didn't have them in the first place. He follows the Lord. Is he? If you follow the Lord, if you're faithful to the Lord, then you're not going to get demonised. Because demons can only gain entry through unconfessed and undealt with sin. So, therefore, alright, someone who has a demon cast out, if they follow the Lord, that that, that, that demon might try again and again and again to get back into them. But they won't be able to get through 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 to that person. Waste of time. That person will be filled with the Holy Spirit, so the demon can't get back in. But what it does show us, if someone's had a demon cast out and they don't follow the Lord, then they're going to get demonised again, and possibly even worse than they were before. So that's, that's the first thing it tells us. Having a demon cast out of you will do you no good at all unless you continually and faithfully follow the Lord from there on in. So, that's, that's a good little thing to know. Uh, a second thing it tells us is uh, an ousted demon is free to re-enter the person he was ousted from if he can. That's the other side of the coin, isn't it? Um, and it tells us as well that when an evil spirit is cast out of someone, it's free to go looking. You know, I mean, we address this thing, you know, some people when they cast demons out, they send them here, there and everywhere. You know, I mean, we, we say it's crazy. No, no, no. I mean, here, for demons cast out of someone, it's free to go looking. Okay, so that's handy to know, a little bit of information. Um, and given that this, this little thing that Jesus is saying here, that a demon that gets cast out but can then re enter, can bring seven others with him, tells us something else about demons, all right? You know, and we need to get this idea. It tells us that there are always plenty of demons around who are available to get into anyone who's got an opening for them. Because presumably these seven other evil spirits, worse than the first one, well, they were presumably kicking their heels somewhere, weren't they? Oh, oh, there's someone we can get into, shoo, off they go. So it tells us that there are certainly enough demons to go around. If you want demons, no problem, you know, get your demons here. I mean, all over the place, um, you know, th- in that respect, they're a bit like rabbits you will never run out of them, you know, like rabbit, there'll always be enough rabbits to go around. And in exactly the same way, there are always going to to, to be, you know, demons to go around. There is absolutely no shortage of them. Uh, I mean, the Bible does not even give us a hint as to the number of angels that were created, but clearly it was a phenomenal number. I mean, you know, when God does things, he does it properly. You know, I mean, when God created a universe, I mean, look at the universe that he created. I mean, you know, the stars are innumerable. And given that, particularly in the Old Testament, also in the New, one of the, the titles for angels are the morning stars. And, uh, I mean, doubtless that the angels are innumerable as well. There's probably countless angels. Now, given that a third of them are now evil spirits, uh, each one either on personal demonisation detachment or on principality and powers duty. I mean, there are loads and, loads and loads and loads and loads of them. So there is no shortage of demons. There are plenty to go around, all right? Uh, But what we're asking here, in regards to, you know, personal demonization, okay, what we've seen is we're asking, where are the demons? We're going to move on to principalities and power shortly, but the evil spirits on personal demonization detachment, where are they located? We need to know where the enemy is, and group 1 is our enemy equally as much as group 2. And the answer we have is this. Well, they can be in someone who they're demonising. So, where are those demons? 1. They can be in someone. Or, B. They can be out looking for someone. Now, that's obvious. But, from this bit we read in Matthew, Jesus tells us of a third place they can be. And it's this third place that, apparently, they immediately go to when they're cast out. Alright? So, when a demon is cast out, Eventually, it will go looking again, it will be back down here, all right, looking again. But immediately, it's cast out, it goes through somewhere, all right. And what Jesus says is that when a demon is cast out, that it passes through waterless places. So, a demon on personal detachment, personal demonization detachment, can be in someone, or it can be out looking for someone, or if it's just been cast out, it's going to be passing through waterless places. Now, that that intrigues me. What does it mean? Now, it's one of the things, um, you know, that, that in regards to this, you're going to get a theory from me now. So I'm not going to be totally dogmatic. I leave it to you to see if it fits all right. But this waterless places, uh, where could it be? Uh, well, it's, it's not Tartarus. Now, we know from the Old Testament and also from what Peter tells us in the letters that he wrote that at the time of Noah, the demons who actually took on a kind of a quasi-human form and started doing their genetic mating to try and eradicate the human race like that, uh, those particular angels, they were actually... They are in prison in a place called Tartarus, in the centre of the earth, all right? So there's a group of demons down there. They've been there since the time of Noah, all right? And uh, they'll be released halfway through the Great Tribulation. But at the moment, they are in Tartarus, uh, otherwise in the Bible called the Abyss or the bottomless pit, all right? And they're there. Now, these waterless places that a demon goes to uh, when it's been cast out can't be Tartarus. And for one simple reason, because Tartarus is a prison. The whole point of Tartarus, it's confining demons in it. So, you know, I mean, you don't go and spend a few days in a prison thinking, do you, and then come out again. So it's not Tartarus. Tartarus is a prison. So these waterless places can't be Tartarus. Uh, Waterless places, Sahara Desert. But that makes no sense. You know, can you see what I mean? You know, that the waterless place should be a location on Earth. That to me doesn't make any sense at all, alright? Um, also we could ask the question, well maybe they're you know, maybe this waterless place is they're flying around in the atmosphere, alright? Well no, it can't be that either, because the atmosphere is full of water. I mean if it wasn't we'd all be dead, we won't be able to breathe for a star. So it can't be that. So I mean, can you see, I'm elimin- we've got these waterless places that a demon passes through uh, when it's been cast out for a while, and I'm just trying to eliminate various things it can be. Now, let me say that we can't be absolutely sure, OK? But I've got, I've got a best guess, all right? And I, I'm going to tell you what it is. This is my theory. I think it's correct you've got to let me prove it to you. If you're not happy with it, reject it, I might be wrong. I can't give you chapter and verse, but don't laugh and just think for one moment, I'm convinced they go into orbit around the planet, out of space, out of space. Now then, just hold that in mind, bear that in mind, because that might make a little bit more sense to you later on, so just bear that in mind. Now, let me go on to an incidentally here, in regards to this thing um, that Jesus says here about passes through waterless spaces, all right? Now, do you remember uh, that the first talk we did in this series, we answered the question, what are evil spirits? And, uh, you know, we had to delve into some of the false teaching that, that goes around. And uh, remember that we saw there uh, that some teach that um, that, that the principalities and powers are fallen angels, right? But the evil spirits who demonize people, i.e., demons, they're not fallen angels, they're something else. So they draw a distinction. And they would say that the fallen angels, Satan being one of them, so Satan and the fallen angels, they constitute the principalities and powers, but the demons, the evil spirits who get into people and demonize them, the demons are not fallen angels. And we saw various weird and wonderful theories, but one of the ones that tends to win out, and uh, we saw this from Derek Prince, didn't we, was the idea that they're actually the spirits of a pre-Adamite creation that went wrong. All right, now we eliminated that, didn't we? We saw, um, you know, th- how wrong that was. And uh, do you remember that we saw that Prince's argument uh, went, went partially like this. In the King James Version, these words here that Jesus speaks about when the evil spirit, you know, goes out of a man. Now, in the, ca- it, in the King James Version, it says that it walks, that the evil spirit walks through waterless places, all right? And his argument goes, angels have wings uh, and fly. Demons, based on what Jesus says here, walk and therefore don't have wings. Therefore, demons aren't Fallen angels, and you'll remember I said that it's the kind of it can seem very persuasive. You know, if you listen to an hour and a half tape and someone going, you know, all sounds very logical. But remember, logicality isn't enough because, for instance, um, you know, you can say, um, you know, all all cats have four legs. Daisy has four legs, therefore Daisy is a cat, which is all right until Daisy starts mooing rather than meowing. Can you see it's false logic based on a false premise? All right, if if cats were the only four-footed creatures around it would be logical but because cows are four-footed as well as cats the logic falls down and we saw his argument was rather like that but what i want to to home in on just go back to this slightly um is that That argument, you know, the thing, angels have wings and fly, therefore demons aren't angels, because here it says demons walk, uh, therefore they don't have wings and don't fly, therefore demons aren't angels. So the principalities and powers are are the angels, but these demons are something else. Oh, what could they be? Oh yes, pre-Adamite creation, that sounds quite good. Now, what I want to show you is that that is a good example of bad Bible teaching. I don't even understand, you know, a good example of bad Bible teaching. And it's on two counts, all right, two counts. Number one, and we went over this in talk one, but I'm going to bring bring in things that I didn't cover there. First of all, the Greek word that in the King James Version gets translated walks, that the evil spirit walks, you know, through waterless places, the Greek word is diakome. And it means simply to pass through. Now, whereas you can certainly pass through somewhere by walking, it doesn't mean that you've necessarily got to walk in order to pass through something. Do you see what I mean? Um, And so, therefore, the Greek here does not specify that it means walking. It means simply passing through. I mean, you know, uh, sort of yesterday, in our car. I mean we, we passed through Essex, Hertfordshire, Cambridgeshire, Suffolk. It was just one of those days yesterday but we weren't walking. But we passed through them. Now, one could pass through them walking but the fact you've passed through them doesn't mean you are. Um, now, just just let's see exactly the same word, diakomai, somewhere else in, in Hebrews. Uh, speaking about Jesus, what, what happened to Jesus when he ascended. And in the letter to, to Hebrews, if I can find the letter to Hebrews. Yes, Um, Hebrews chapter 4 and and verse 14, and uh, it it says this, it's all about Jesus, you know, ascending. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So it's saying here that Jesus at the ascension passed through the heavens, all right? Now, let's, let's just stop. Pass through the heavens, the heavens. What are the heavens? In the Bible, there are three heavens, all right? Uh, the first heaven is the air, the atmosphere, all right? The atmosphere. Uh, the, the actual Greek word for heaven is Uranus, and it's, it's where the planet Uranus is named from strangely enough, um, and that is the the word in the Bible for heaven, is Uranus, all right? That's the Greek word for heaven. Now, if you go to Matthew 8, verse 20, Matthew 8, verse 20, um, what well, I'm going to show you, the Bible teaches that there are three heavens, the Greek word for heaven, Uranus, all right? where the planet Uranus is named from. Now, in Matthew 8, verse 20, you simply get Jesus saying, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, notice that reference to birds of the air. The Greek word there for air is heavens, uranos. Now, as we're going to see, there's another Greek word that only means air. We're going to see that shortly. Uh, but here it's the word heaven Uranus, and it's because in the Bible and Jewish culture the air that the birds fly in was considered to be the heavens so when Jesus passed through the heavens we have heaven number one the atmosphere in which the atmosphere in which the birds of the air fly now the second heaven is Outer space. Now, do bear in mind, alright, please bear in mind what I said earlier about what this waterless places are, that so that might make more sense as we keep going. Go to Matthew 24, and I'm going to show you that the second heaven is outer space. Matthew 24, and uh, this is uh, fine verse 29. And this is simply Jesus uh, talking about what's going to happen just prior to the Second Coming, all right, you know, during the Great Tribulation. That's, That's not important, but just one verse. Matthew 24 and verse 29, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven. Outer space. Where are the stars? They're in outer space. And there is the Greek word, Uranos here translated heaven, whereas with the birds of the air, it was translated air. So, therefore, heaven, number one, the atmosphere, the air in which the birds fly. Heaven, number two, outer space. Now, what comes after that? I mean, relative to our planet, all right? Remember, the universe is finite. I don't know... I I don't know if anyone here has kind of, you know, sort of got all all mixed up with Einsteinian theory, but let me assure you that the universe is finite. How do I know that? Quite simply, God put it there. God put it there. There was a time it didn't exist. All right? So therefore the universe even though For someone inside the universe, it appears it has no end. For someone outside the universe, it does have an end. Now, the universe is finite. It comes to an end. Now, therefore, from our point of view on planet Earth, if you go up, you go through the air, heaven number one. Then you go through outer space. Now, if you then reach the limit of the universe, all right, where are you then? Well, God's heaven, God's home. Because remember, God's home existed before he created the universe. So therefore, heaven number three is where God lives. That is the heaven where God has his throne. And it's outside of the universe completely. All right, go to 2 Corinthians 12. And if anyone is sceptical, this will demonstrate it. I haven't gone off my rocker. What's that? Why they use holy water? No, no, nothing to do with it. Uh, right, 2 Corinthians twelve. Now this is Paul talking about the fact that, that, that sometime after he became a Christian, uh, he God actually took him up into heaven. Incredible. Look at this. I know a man in Christ. He, he was kind of humble, he didn't want to draw attention. This is 2 Corinthians 12 verse 2. Uh, Paul didn't want to draw attention to the fact that it, it was him too much. So he says, I know a man in Christ who, 40, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but I do know that this man was caught up into paradise. And where is paradise? Where did paradise start off? It was the Garden of Eden. After man fell, what happened to paradise taken down into the centre of the earth? And that is where believers went when they died. What happened when Jesus ascended? He took it to heaven with him. So paradise is now back in heaven. One day it's going to be back on earth. The Garden of Eden will be back. But here, Paul talking about the fact that he goes to paradise, which is in heaven, and he says, the third heaven. Now, why did Paul call it the third heaven? Because as a Jew, his thinking was heaven number one was the air, heaven number two was out of space, and heaven number three was actually God's home, alright? So, what we've seen here, okay, is in the Hebrews verse, we saw that Jesus, remember our train of thought is that it's talking about the fact that the King James Version said that these demons walk through waterless places. Derek Prince creates an incredible argument out of that, okay? But what we've seen is the Greek word simply means pass through, diakome. And we read in Hebrews that Jesus passed through the heavens. And we've now seen the heavens that he passed through. When Jesus ascended, first of all he went through the atmosphere, then he went through outer space, i.e. through the universe, and then he passed out of the universe into heaven. So that is what it means that Jesus passed through the heavens. He left earth, went through the atmosphere, through outer space, arrived at his own home in heaven. And he passed through. But here's the point. I'll bet he wasn't walking. Can you see? It establishes this one thing. That Derek Prince laid everything on the fact that the King James Version translated passed through as walking. It's a very silly translation. And remember the argument is this. All right? Demons aren't fallen angels. Fallen angels, okay, uh, angels have wings, therefore they fly. Demons walk, and we've seen it's a wrong translation, therefore they're not fallen angels, they're something else. All right. So it's bad Bible teaching in the sense that um, it's, it's completely ignoring the facts Um, That that a Greek word wrongly translated in the King James Version can never be used as the basis for something that turns into, you know, fundamentally a wild theory that isn't borne out uh, by the Bible. So, therefore, I've said it's bad Bible teaching on two counts. It's sort of saying that demons walk. There's nowhere, you know, this verse that he quotes does not say that demons walk, all right? Uh, And then trying to draw a distinction that because demons walk and angels have wings and fly, therefore demons aren't angels. So it's bad Bible teaching, even in regards to getting back to the original languages, all right? But it's also bad Bible teaching on another count, all right? Let's just assume for one moment that this verse in the Matthew was that that the Greek word was definitely walking. Let's say that the Bible did say at that point that the evil spirits walked through waterless places. Now then, even if it was, what would that prove? Because if one is following the argument that all angels have wings, therefore they fly, demons walk, therefore they're not angels, what on earth is to prevent an angel with wings walking sometimes rather than flying? Can you see what is there about angels having wings that prohibits them from f- flying I, I mean that's crazy. What about birds? They fly and they walk i mean i 'm just trying to show you what a silly, silly argument it is, but sadly, so many people have been impressed, presumably, with the waffle in regards to all of it, and they've they 've fallen in. But also we saw that the statement all angels have wings also cannot be established from the Bible. We know that some angels have wings. We know the cherubim do because the Bible tells us. But there are different types of angel. So therefore in order to establish alright that all angels have wings you can't do it from the Bible so can you see the completely fallacious argument? okay in regards to it some bi- angels do have wings but there is nothing to suggest in the Bible that they all do now I want to go on to something now which really closes this debate once and for all remember the argument the principalities and powers headed up by Satan they are the principal they are the fallen angels the demons are completely different, they're not angels at all. And the argument based on the fact that demons walk, angels have wings and fly, and I mean we've seen how stupid that is. But the whole point, demons walk, angels, the principalities and powers, fly. Now go to 1 Peter, 1 Peter, and find chapter 5 and verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. And we read this Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, what is interesting there is the Greek word that my Bible has translated prowls around. And what's interesting is that the Greek verb there is peripateo. And peripateo is the Greek word for walk. It means to pace up and down. It means that and nothing else. So the literal translation is be sober, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion. Um. In fact, we have the, uh, the English word from this is peripatetic. Um, if you've got a peripatetic something or other, he's an itinerant. Like, for instance, a peripatetic teacher would be someone who goes around you know, to different schools. And the use of the word was that you had someone who wasn't doing a job in one place, but they were walking around to different places in order to do their job. And that was why someone who is itinerant became known as a peripatetic, be it a peripatetic teacher, a peripatetic evangelist, or whatever. And it's because this word here specifically means to walk. Now here's the point. Derek Prince's argument is that the principalities and powers, and no one in this argument, Derek Prince knows full well that Satan is a fallen angel. He is the chief of the principalities and powers. The argument is the princes and palaces of powers are angels. They have wings, they fly. The demons don't have wings, they walk. Well, here we've got a reference to Satan walking because the Greek word here, peripateo, is the Greek word quite specifically for walking. Now, also, I'm sure all of you have heard of Aristotle. Yes, the Greek philosopher. I'm sure you have. I have no doubt. I'm also, Convinced that you have often wondered why Aristotelian philosophy is named peripatetic thought Of course, course. I'm sure you've wondered that You know, I mean why isn't just the teachings of Aristotle Why can't it just be called Aristotle's thinking or Aristotelian philosophy Why is it called technically peripatetic philosophy? Why? Well, I'll tell you. Because Aristotle, remember, he taught in the Lyceum in ancient Greece, all right, a long, long time ago, but one of the world's most influential philosophers to this day, he gave his teachings walking around the Lyceum. Other people would sit or stand still. But Aristotle, just because it was him, he walked around. So, as Aristotle was giving his classes, He had a a group of people following behind him because he, he just walked everywhere. You know, I mean, he couldn't stand still, he just walked. And so therefore, Aristotelian philosophy became known as peripatetic thought because Aristotle was known that he always walked around. So then, what have we got here? We've got the statement that Satan walks. But the argument that says demons aren't fallen angels is precisely that the Bible says that the evil spirits walk, and we've seen that the Bible doesn't say that at all. Uh, The principalities and powers don't walk, therefore they fly, therefore they're different from demons. And here we have a verse specifically telling us that Satan, who Derek Prince would accept is a principality and power, we have a reference to him walking. Can you see this argument falls totally and 100% to bits? Go to Job. Just just the beginning of the book of Job, all right? And in the book of Job, uh, you want chapter one. We could go to other bits of it, but chapter one will do. And um, <clears throat> let's see, let's have uh, chapter one, verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God, the angels, Uh, Be they goody angels or bady angels, in the Bible, the sons of God, in the Old Testament reference to the angels, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, Whence have you come? Satan answered the Lord from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Now, can you see this argument that evil spirits aren't fallen angels is just a classic example of bad Bible teaching, bad thinking, bad just-about-everything, alright? Okay, so we've said a bit about the evil spirits on personal detachment detail, alright? We've seen that they're either in someone, looking for someone, or if they've immediately been cast out, they're in this waterless place passing through it and I, I, I've said to you that my money is that actually it's out of space and, and, and I want you to stop laughing long enough uh, for the end of this Bible study to see if that still starts to make more sense but because what we're going to move on now we've done the evil spirits on personal demonization detachment but what about the evil spirits who constitute the principalities and powers where are they? Where do they hang out? Alright? Okay, go to Ephesians, and let's find out where they hang out. Ephesians, find chapter 2 and verse 2. Ephesians 2 and verse 2. No, that's really it from verse 1. Paul saying, And you, I us, Christians, he made alive when you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world Do you remember the thing about the principles of this world? The principalities, the stoichion, alright? Uh, follow, um, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience Who is talking about here? Satan Satan, the prince of the power principalities and powers Now, the demons in the principalities and powers are corporately principalities and powers. But Satan is their big chief. So he is the prince and the power. Can you see the tie up there? All right. But look what it says, that Satan, as a principality and power, the big chief, the leader of the principalities and powers, look, he's the prince of the power of the air. Air. Now, we've already seen, all right, that the Greek word for heaven, is is used of the air, all right, um, or the sky, as well as outer space. But here, here, the Greek word translated is air. (laughs) A-E-R, air. And it is the specific Greek word for air. It doesn't mean anything else. It doesn't mean heaven. It means air, that you breathe. That is the meaning of the word as in aero, think bubbles, can you see? So here it is talking about the air that the birds fly in, the atmosphere that we breathe from the surface of the earth up to where the atmosphere ends, that is the air. That, Satan, is the prince of the power of that, all right? That's where we get the word aeroplane from, from the Greek word for air. It's where we get our English word air from, (laughs) because the Greek word for air is air. Is this simple enough, or is this getting too complicated now? <laughs> Can you see the connection? So here in the Greek, it is definitely talking about the air that we move in, the aeroplanes flying, that birds flying, and stuff like that. Let's 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 see this Greek word in other contexts. Go go to one Thessalonians, just so I convince you. It's important to know where our enemy is. Uh, one Thessalonians, chapter four. And uh, verse 17, Um, and this is talking about the rapture, and Paul says, Then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So if we're going to meet the Lord in the clouds, where are the clouds? They're in the air, aren't they? That's, That's where the clouds are. So there we have it, it's there. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's funny, some, some Christians um, have, have kind of tried to communicate to me, some more graciously than others, that I take the Bible far too literally. And although I don't actually say it to their faces because I wouldn't want to be ungracious, the actual answer is, yeah, I do, and that's why I understand what I'm talking about, and they don't. Because the Bible is meant to be taken literally, this is the point, this is why it makes sense. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 26, uh, Paul says, I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air. Talking about shadow boxing, when you're shadow boxing, what are you punching? You're punching the air. Uh, Go to 1 Corinthians 14, a couple of chapters on, and verse 9. Uh and Paul says... Speak, you know, he's talking about here, if you get public tongues without interpretation, it's a waste of time. And he says, uh, if, if you in a tongue utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what he said? For you will be speaking into the air. Oh, it's going to be mere waffle when we speak. Well, our very words are air, you see. Uh, go to Acts 22. Acts 22. And find verse twenty-three, and uh, and as the, I think this is probably it says as they cried out and waved their garment and threw dust into the air. So here you've got people waving their garments and they're throwing dust into the air. Uh, could be a Pentecostal meeting, I don't know, possibly All Saints at their celebrations, but I haven't been lately. Um, you know, but you see air. Now, what we've established is quite simply this. In two, in Ephesians 2 verse 2, Paul says that Satan, as the chief principality and power, i.e. the principalities and powers, where are they? They're in the air. And we've seen that the Greek word As we've seen it again, all these words are the same Greek word, air, and air, or sky, is what they literally mean, all right? Uh, Now, go back to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. Bear in mind, our question here is, where are they? Where is the enemy? Where are the principalities and powers? Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12 And Paul says, "'For we are not contending against flesh and blood, "'but against the principalities, "'against the powers, "'against the world rulers of this present darkness, "'against the spiritual hosts of wickedness.'" Now, he says the various phrases that Paul uses for these demons, the principalities and powers. And look what he says. "'In the heavenly places.'" That's where they are. And where is one of the heavenly places? In the air. Because in Greek thought, the air, the atmosphere, was the first heaven. Now it goes wider than this. We know that the evil spirits, they can pass between earth and heaven. So therefore, evil spirits do have access to outer space. They're as happy in our atmosphere as they are in outer space, or as they are outside of the universe. So, when it talks about these principalities and powers being in the heavenly places, it's certainly talking about them being in outer space, but more immediately, they are in the atmosphere that surround us. That is one of the heavenly places. Go back to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. Paul says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of god might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places can you see we're discovering where our enemy is we're finding out where they are where they are these demon powers are actually all around us in the atmosphere it's where they live in the air now they basically live anywhere They can survive in outer space. They can have access outside of the universe into heaven. But the point is, relative to us, in regards to the work they're doing, the mischief they're getting up to, all this manipulating, the push at back of human history, the point is, as they manipulate from behind the cosmic curtain, they're doing so in the atmosphere. That is where they actually are. And that is how it is they can influence people's thoughts because they are located in the same atmosphere as we are living in. And, doubtless, the atmosphere is full of them. I mean, we have, they are innumerable. We have no way of knowing how many of them there are. Now, obviously, they're invisible. They do not have a corporeal body. They do have a body, but not a corporeal one. Therefore, in the atmosphere they may be, but they don't show up on radar. But one wouldn't expect them to. They're angels. But nevertheless, spirit beings do not have a corporeal body. But nevertheless, they still exist. And the spirits, the angels, are existing. They're habiting the atmosphere in which we are living. Now, that will make real sense of a statement that I'm now going to make. All right, in regards to spiritual warfare. And I think this is the key to understanding what spiritual warfare is all about. All right, I think it's fundamental to our understanding of it. Remember, what we've been seeing is that the evil spirits, the principalities and powers, are in the atmosphere. Now, here's the statement. The spiritual warfare changes the atmosphere of a situation, or of a place. How can you see the point? Spiritual warfare will change the atmosphere surrounding whatever situation it is that God is leading you into spiritual warfare in regards to. Can you see the tie I mean, we talk about being bad atmospheres, but when we talk about bad atmosphere, we're not meaning that Oh, you know, the, the air quality isn't too good today. You know, the carbon dioxide is up a bit and the oxygen's down. We talk about the atmosphere in the sense of the feeling, the atmosphere that is created by the human condition in any one situation. Now, here's the point the principalities and powers are in the literal atmosphere all right so therefore atmospheres are changed by spiritual warfare let me give you a kind of a for instance and and i mean this could i mean there are any there are millions and millions of applications here because there are millions and millions of different human situations and behind them all you've got the principalities and powers but just take a situation that we can all identify with there are times when uh, whether it's at the prayer evening on a Friday, whether it's here on a Tuesday night, or whether it's at the hall on a Sunday, there are times when, you know, sort of like the worship or or prayer can start off what you might say really awful, really dead, really kind of, oh, I'm just, this is terrible, you know, this is really, all alright, but... Nevertheless, half-hour later, an hour later, it's fantastic. And whatever that uh that was there has gone. And suddenly it's, wow, praise the Lord, this is absolutely marvellous. So for a time of worship that started off so dead, and it ends up absolutely wonderful, really full of the life of God. Now, how has that happened? I'll tell you, the atmosphere has changed. Do you get the point? The atmosphere has changed because the fact that you kept going has countered the demonic influence on that situation. Remember, the principalities and powers, where are they? They're in the air. Do they like Christians worshipping? No, they don't. They want us to worship them. Well, we're not going to. But being bad losers, they certainly don't want us worshipping everyone else. So therefore, anytime time there's worship going on, they want to destroy it. So how do they do it? They influence our minds, they create an atmosphere. How many times have you experienced, and I don't know whether this is the answer to John's problem, when you're trying to pray and immediately you're so tired. You weren't tired before you started to pray, but the moment you start to pray you're tired, you're fighting to stay awake. Why is that? It's the principalities and powers. They're creating an atmosphere of lethargy around you. Now you've got to deal with it. You've got to tell them where to go. You've got to face it head on. Can you see? And then that atmosphere, that interference will be dealt with and the demonic influence will be countered and removed. This is why people, uh, you know, even Christians, even Christians, uh, say if uh, they've got resentment or stuff like that in their hearts, they're not right with God, they're out of fellowship. It's why, it's why they create an atmosphere that spoils fellowship. Have you noticed that? When someone is clearly out of fellowship, they're clearly not right with God. They've got resentment or they're hating someone or something like that. They've got a fight on, a bee in their bonnet. They create an atmosphere. Well, it's it's the demonic influence of the principalities and powers working through that unconfessed sin. That doesn't mean that there's a demon in them. I'm not talking about personal demonization detachment stuff. But it's the principalities and powers influencing, getting a foothold and therefore creating an atmosphere. Now, the point about spiritual warfare is this. The influence of demons in all these different ways in regards to unbelievers, we saw last time that Satan has a blindness over unbelievers. Spiritual warfare counters it, takes the blindness away. Doesn't guarantee they're gonna get converted, but it takes the blindness away so they know that God is calling them and then they make that decision, but until the blindness of the principalities and powers is removed, they won't give a monkey's, you see. But the point is, spiritual warfare is that whatever influence the principalities and powers are having in any given situation, that influence, that thinking, that effect is to be countered and to be replaced by the Lord's influence. And we do that by releasing the power of God into situations where previously it's the power of these princip- the principalities and powers, you know, manipulating feelings, manipulating people through thoughts and blah, 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 all right? And it's countering what they're doing and replacing it with the releasing of God's power. And think of it like this, in exactly the same way that you may have someone, all right, and they're clearly out of fellowship, they create an atmosphere, don't they? So that even if you're feeling good, you know, you're, you're with the Lord, you. You're full of faith. You know, life's great. You you might not be feeling marvellous, but life is great. You're in obedience to God, you're following Him. Bang. All right. Now, as soon as you're in the presence of people who aren't Christians who are out of fellowship, suddenly it's that much harder, isn't it, to hang on? Because this neg- this atmosphere comes and it starts to get you. And whereas before you were doing great, now you've really got to, you know. Because I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have dreamt at that moment of sort of saying something vindictive about someone, would they? But then someone who's out of fellowship, they give you a little tidbit, and suddenly, yeah, and you fight. Can you see? Because it's spreading onto you. Gas, that atmosphere, that yuck is spreading onto you and you've got to counter it. But in exactly the same and, and if you're really okay with the Lord, suddenly it gets that much harder to be okay with the Lord. You see what I mean? But contrary-wise, when someone is in fellowship with the Lord, I mean say you, you go around and see someone. I mean, you know, what What should a Christian home do? You should walk in that front door and you should be so at peace, you should be relaxed and somehow the Lord's here. And when you meet people who are in fellowship with God, even if you're feeling down, it's a little bit harder to stay down. Can you see? Because there's something... Now, if you're in rebellion, if you're really in rebellion, the last thing you want is to be close to a Christian who's going on with the Lord, obviously. But if you're just feeling a bit down, Someone who's really in fellowship, they encourage you. They change the atmosphere surrounding your downness, your bleh they lift you out of it. Can you see? Because the power of the law through them is countering the effects of the principalities and powers that are working away on your mind and on your feelings, blah blah blah. And it's this releasing God's power and replacing the effects of the principalities and powers with the effect of the Holy Spirit that we're going to be moving on to next time. That's the talk next week, All right. But we haven't quite finished here yet. Because in regards to location, that's the main thing we've been been dealing with tonight. Go to Revelation, Revelation, because also in regards to location, I don't know whether people realize this, but Satan has an actual geographic HQ on earth from which he masterminds his operations. All right, I mean obviously every army has an HQ there's a location where the big man or the big men are, and they work out from that location. Satan has an HQ on earth. Now, go to Revelation, and in chapter 2, we want verse uh, verse 12, and this is the letter that Jesus wrote uh, to the church in in, in Pergamum, alright? And uh, verse 13, and this is the Lord speaking to a church, of disciples and he says this, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now I want you to understand that his HQ is not necessarily always the same place. But what we do know at the time that this letter was, at the time when John wrote the Revelation, which was, you know, probably looking around, you know, the, towards the end of the first century. What we do know is that at that particular time, Satan's HQ was here in Pergamum because the Bible here tells us so, and this is Jesus himself writing to a church. Now, the location of that HQ can well change, but what's interesting here is that in Pergamum, all right, now obviously the Roman Empire is is one day going to be raised up again by the Antichrist, and it was the Roman Empire in power at the time of Jesus, and at the time that this was written, the basis, the fabric, of the Roman Empire was held together via worship of Caesar, worshipping the emperor as a god. Now, the first place, I mean, obviously, this, this belief developed in the Romans, you know, and it kind of, it developed and got more and more, but the first ever place where a temple was built for the official worship of the Roman Empire was in Pergamum. And that was built in 29 BC. Pergamum was the first place where the Romans erected a temple specifically so that they could worship their emperor as a god. Now, Satan's HQ could be anywhere now. I mean, you know, sort of like, I mean, sometimes you get people saying, I mean, at the moment, one of the things that's going around is that Satan's HQ is in Los Angeles. Obviously, because look at, you know, look what they're up to. Now, the point is, there is no way of knowing that. Satan will have a, you know, an HQ. In a battle, you don't keep the same HQ necessarily. Now, we've got no way of knowing where his HQ is now. We know that he's got one. We know that here it was Pergamum, and we know why. But there's no way for us to know where that HQ is at the moment. But he definitely has one. And also, there's no way God can tell us. Because if you felt you had a revelation, you know, that sort of Lord has shown you that, you know, sort of like Satan's world HQ was South Woodford. the point is, there's no way to test it. So don't expect God to tell you. He won't. He won't. That kind of information you know, it's just daft, we don't need to know it, but we know that Satan has an HQ. But what we do know is in the last days in the Great Tribulation, we know where his HQ is going to be then. And it's going to be in Rome. Because Rome, the Roman Empire, is going to be revived. And why is the Antichrist going to revive the Roman Empire? Because he's going to be the Caesar. And what's going to happen to the Antichrist if he's the Caesar in a Roman Empire? He's going to be worshipped as God so we know that in future times in the great tribulation satan's hq is going to be rome all right but we don't know where it is now all right but if we're dealing with the question of location it is good to know that satan does have an hq it's just nice information to have we need to know all we can it used to be pergamum and i've shown you one snippet of info that kind of bears that out Uh, but we don't know where it is now, but we know that one day it's going to be Rome, okay? Now, we're coming right to the end, but I want to add a a postscript to this talk, Uh, and I think it's important, all right, and it's quite simply this. In in regards to this whole warfare thing, all right, the whole spiritual warfare, we must not go overboard. Uh, I mean, half, half of the half of the ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the false teaching that we've been bashing on the head as we've been going through is Christians going overboard, being silly, getting carried away, uh, uh, believing things that cannot be established from Bible, uh, getting emotional, bit bit silly, bit intense, bit bit kind of starting to get kicks out of it. Let me tell you, it's dangerous. When you get intensity, I mean, yeah, there is an intensity with God, and it's a lovely, relaxing thing. But as soon as you get the kind of intensity, you know, where virtually the hairs are standing up on the back of your neck, you are not in the presence of the Holy Spirit. God is not intense like that. you see what I mean? God is peace, He's love, He's order. But when things get really intense in the way that I'm talking about, be it amongst Christians or whatever, it all gets a little bit, you know, you you think, anything would happen now and it's kind of ooh, I, I've got to watch this that kind of intensity is not from the Lord, that kind of intensity is actually created by the principalities and powers, so we've got to make sure that we don't go overboard let's not, I mean okay we have discovered tonight that there are principalities, these angels all over the place in the atmosphere, they're invisible, can't see them, but they are all over the place they are everywhere, but let's not have any of this kind of um, you know, let's let's say kind of like on a Sunday all right. after 10 minutes, it's hard going. I don't want people having visions of a demon sitting on the right-hand corner at the <laughs> ceiling of the hall blocking our worship, so let's bash it. Let's not have any stuff like that because then you're going overboard, seeing a demon sitting on the rafters. I mean, this may sound daft to you, it does to me, but this is the kind of lengths that people go to. Let's be aware that yes, there is spiritual warfare and we're going to be moving on to that in more detail next time. Yes. The principalities and powers need praying against and yes one might in a particular situation really discern that there's a satanic blockage here and let's really pray against it and get moving but can you see the difference between that and visions of the demons hanging off the ceiling that's what I mean by going overboard we don't want that stuff here because it is silly it's unnecessary completely unnecessary, all right, but simply the fallen angels, the principalities and powers, as with the goody angels, are everywhere, absolutely everywhere, the goody angels are and the bady angels are. It's not a question of seeing them or feeling them or being aware of their presence all the time. It's a question of getting on, following the Lord, and where we become aware that we are being hindered by what they are up to, you deal with it, bang. And we'll see you next time how. But we don't want any going overboard in regards to it. Now then, we must simply, as part and parcel of our Christian lives, without getting heavy about it, without going overboard, without being silly, We must, nevertheless, as part and parcel of our Christian lives, we must use the weapons that God has given us against the principalities and powers. When we are confronted with them, we must use our weapons against them and we must use those weapons effectively and we must know what we're doing with those weapons. So come back next time to find out what the weapons are.